So after spending last week in Hosea, this week we move into the book of Joel, which I think is probably a little bit less familiar. It's a little book, only three chapters, not hard to read through. You guys could read through it this afternoon when you get home if you're curious. It's only three chapters, but the impact of the book of Joel on Israel and eventually on the church, you and I, is far and wide. What Joel is saying here is immensely significant for the church. And the hope is is that as we move through this series, hopefully you're going to see that the same is true of all 12 of these prophets. As we were saying last week, their message is not minor. We call them minor prophets. But the message is, is not minor. They're not insignificant. They've not been relegated to some lower status within the canon of Scripture. Like these prophets have something to speak to us. And their message is, is not easily forgotten either. There's something very memorable about each one of these prophets in their own right. For their own reason, they are memorable. Hosea, for example, last week. Hosea is a book that is memorable because of its, its raw emotional quality. There is something deeply honest and, and emotional about what Hosea is, is dealing with. Hosea feels something deeply painful. And that raw and kind of visceral quality of the book of Hosea teaches us something important about God. That God actually feels God is not cold and distant and detached. God feels, and he feels something very strongly for his people. God's heart can be broken, right? Hosea teaches that. Hosea experiences that in a way that is more deeply personal than any other prophet, I think. Nobody else deals with it at the level that that Hosea does. Like, he has this empathy. He feels that. And we have an empathy for Hosea, right? Hosea is feeling this empathy for God. He recognizes what God is, is going through. And we're able to feel that for Hosea. That's his thing. Joel has his own thing. And that thing, strangely enough, is, is bugs. That's the whole thing. Locusts. Honestly, it's, it's, it's locusts. Like a, a whole army of locusts devouring everything in sight. That's That's Joel's thing. You cannot forget Joel. You might say Joel is like the, he's the sci-fi prophet of the 12. He has the most sci-fi message of all. That's what's happening, right? It made me think this week about a a movie I haven't thought about in a long time. You guys remember that 1990s movie? Most of you guys won't. Starship Troopers? Anybody else remember Starship Troopers? If you haven't seen it, you don't need to, honestly. You really don't, don't. Don't go looking for it. The plot is something like this. There's an extraterrestrial bug invasion. And the story is of this, this group of like ragtag teenagers who are drafted and are, are chosen to save the world from this, again, extraterrestrial bug invasion, right? Truly amazing, airtight plot. What could go wrong, right? This is a great movie. You guys are going to want to see that, right? It's a little silly. The difference between Joel and Starship Troopers is Joel is not telling us about these bugs for simply entertainment value. He actually has a a real purpose behind all of this. And I kind of want to give you guys an idea of what he's doing. Let's read uh, from Joel chapter 1. We're just going to read the first four four verses of, of this book. This is what Joel says. From the beginning. 
the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days? Or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Yes, it's just a lot of bugs. I don't know if you guys caught that. Every time it says great locust, young locust, those are different words for locusts, guys. In Hebrew, there are multiple words for locusts. They dealt with so many locusts, they had different categories of locusts that they all recognized, okay? It's about bugs, but it's about more than that, right? Now, with other prophets, you at least get some introduction, right? A little background info, who they are, where they're from, who was the king, when they were writing these things, right, you get something, how they were called to be a prophet. With Joel, it's just like, hello, my name is Joel. Would you like to meet my bugs? That's the whole thing. Like, like Joel just out of the gate introduces you to the locusts. He doesn't waste any time with introduction. It's nowhere near as personal as the book of Hosea. Like Hosea, you feel like you know him. You feel for Hosea. You love Hosea by the time that thing's over. Joel is just jumping right in. And all we really know for sure about Joel is that he must have been a voracious reader of Scripture. In three chapters, he's quoting multiple other prophets than himself who came before him. He's quoting other Old Testament books, making references. Three chapters, and he's covering all of that alongside all of the the, the bug stuff, right? Joel, we also know, is from the southern kingdom of Judah. He's speaking to the southern kingdom. Remember, there's like this civil war kind of rift that exists between a northern kingdom that they generally refer to as Israel and a southern kingdom where Jerusalem is called Judah. Joel is in Judah. That's about it. That's all the background we can figure out. Joel doesn't care about background info. He doesn't want to tell you that because Joel is consumed by one thing, this idea of the day of the Lord. Joel comes back to the day of the Lord over and over again. The first time you see it is actually in verse 15. We didn't read it, but this is what it says. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord is near. He will repeat this over and over again. Sometimes he'll just abbreviate it to the day. The day is near. The day is coming. And this is not unique to Joel. Being in the book of the 12, we're going to read these other prophets, and you're going to hear that phrase, the day of the Lord. So it's kind of important to know exactly what he's getting at. It's not unique to him. And the people who were hearing these words from Joel in the early, earliest days, the people who were reading these words later, all would have been very familiar with this idea of the day of the Lord and what it meant. It's a, a complex kind of theological notion that deals with God's judgment of humanity. Judgment is a thing we're all deeply uncomfortable with, I think. As a society, as a culture, judgment bothers us. But as uncomfortable as judgment makes us, as offensive as it is to our modern sensibilities, if you read the prophets, you're going to see it. 
again and again and again. And it's a little weird how much they're talking about judgment because we tend to lean away from that. But they're going to bring it up again and again. And the hope is, again, as we read these books, as we listen to what they're saying about something like judgment, the day of the Lord that is coming, we come to understand what they're getting at and understand how it's necessary and even beyond just necessary, good. That there is a, an inherent goodness and value to judgment. It's a necessity for how we understand and express our faith. Because that's how Joel sees it. He sees the day of the Lord in this way. The day of the Lord needs to happen. The day of the Lord is good in Joel's eyes because he sees Yahweh as being good. Even through this, this craziness of destruction and invasion, Joel knows there is no other way by which we will arrive at what God intends for his good creation and for his people than through the ugliness and the pain of judgment. As uncomfortable as it makes it, Joel wants to press that upon us. But here's the thing. Normally, when I say judgment, a thing comes to mind for most of us. We think of judgment, and we're generally thinking about the future, right? The coming judgment, the coming day of the Lord is a future sort of reality. We think about things in that sense. The same thing happens with the prophets. When I think of a prophet, I'm generally thinking of prophetic prediction, right? Foretelling. Prophet tells me what's coming in the future. And so we see somebody like Joel and all these other prophets, like fortune tellers, like soothsayers. And guys, in Israel, there were fortune tellers and soothsayers. God didn't like them. Joel is not a fortune teller, a soothsayer. He is interested in the future to be certain. He's talking about the future over and over again. The day of the Lord is a future reality. Judgment is a future reality, right? But it's not just about the future. That's what the prophets want you to see. The message of Joel is bringing the future to bear on our present circumstance. He's trying to speak to right where Judah finds itself, here and now. There's a, a Jewish scholar who you've probably heard us quote if you've been around very long. Abraham Heschel wrote a book on the prophets, and, and this is how he says it. He explains prophecy this way. The prophet's essential task is to declare the word of God to the here and now. The prophet's essential task is to declare the word of God to the here and the now and to disclose the future in order to illumine what is involved in the present. The essential reality of being a prophet is that they are to disclose the word of God to the here and now and they're illuminating the future only in as much as they intend to illuminate what's happening in the here and now. They're using the future, speaking to the future, showing us what is coming in order to speak to the here and now. We cannot disconnect the two and we do so often connect the here and now and that future reality. Right? We do it. There's a disconnect that so often exists. But for a prophet, for Joel, the future only matters in as much as we recognize how it affects our present. It only matters. None of that is important if it's not speaking to the present and we don't see how it affects it. The reverse is also true. How we understand the present, what is going on in the moment we find ourselves living in, only matters in as much as we can see it in the larger meta story, the, the narrative 
of salvation history, of where God is taking humanity, right? The present ought to speak to where God is taking us, and the future ought to be speaking to the here and now. And the prophet enables us to do that in a different sort of way. We disconnect the two. We don't see it. But a prophet has a way of doing that. How is this connected to God's greater plan for humanity and creation? So if Joel is going to tell you about the coming future day of the Lord, the question that keeps him awake at night is, what does this mean for the here and the now? What am I supposed to do right now? If this thing that I'm saying is true, what are we supposed to do right now? And the same thing is true for the church. Jonathan said something last week that's important. We see that the church has a prophetic task in our society. The church is supposed to have a prophetic voice. And that means sometimes we're going to say things and people are going to look at at us crazy, just like people looked at Joel crazy. They're going to look at us and and be bothered. We're going to say some things that are kind of disagreeable with the present moment. It's just going to happen inevitably. The church is supposed to have that prophetic task. That means we ought to be kept awake at night by the same question. What does this mean for the here and now? How does the the reality of a future coming kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, how does that speak to the here and now? What does that mean for you right now where you find yourself in your seat? And Joel has a way of teaching us about that, helping us to see that. Joel's answer is pretty simple. What are you doing the here and now? Repent. That's where he goes immediately. You have to repent. You have to embrace this repentance reality. It's like John the Baptist. One of the first people you meet in the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament is this mysterious figure out in the wilderness. People are coming to him, and he's got this message. Pretty simple. Repent, for the kingdom is near. It's interesting. Joel is pushing us toward repentance. If you read in chapter 2, let's actually read uh, verses 12 to 17. This will give you an idea. Some of this may sound familiar. You may have heard some of this. Verse 12, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Mourning, repentance. And in this Jewish context, in the ancient world in general, really, a huge portion of of what it is to mourn is to, to sit in sackcloth and ash, right? There's this different sort of reality. Sackcloth is a sign. You're probably familiar with it. You'll see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this idea of, of sitting in the ashes, right? 
putting on sackcloth. It was a sign of something. And Joel, when he tells us that, he's saying this is an occasion for mourning. And I, I think that's lost on us because when you tell us about bugs and, and locusts, like in our present moment, like we hear about that stuff. That still happens in the modern world. That's still going on. Like we see those things happen. And we kind of go, well, I mean, someone lost crops. Food will probably get more expensive in the meantime, but we'll find it somewhere else. You've got bugs, they're gross. You call somebody, they spray for them. It doesn't really bother us. But what Joel is saying, like this is a national disaster. This is a tragedy. People will die of starvation. Like this is something to be mourned, and Joel wants you to see that. He wants you to feel it and understand it, how ugly this is about to get. You don't wear regular clothes when you hear that kind of news, right? You put on sackcloth. And so he says symbolically, rend your hearts, not your garments, right? He wants you to see this. We don't, we don't know that Joel is saying another locust invasion is coming. They've surely seen these. Again, they know locusts inside out. They've seen this over and over again. We don't know that Joel is saying what's going to happen is another one of those. What we do know is, is Joel is trying to say, destruction like that is coming. You've seen it, but you haven't seen it quite like this. There's something unlike anything you've ever seen or experienced. A destruction you cannot imagine is coming, and you need to repent. You have no choice. But here's the thing. People can, can mourn and repent. People can tear their clothes to make clear to everyone that their heart is broken, right? You can send this surface level kind of signal to everybody around you and it not be legitimate. We've seen that repentance can just be this sort of like outward surface level reality. It happens in our lives. It happens in the church. It can all just be empty religious lip service. We say what we know we're supposed to. That's what repentance looks like so often in the church. Like, you've experienced this. You know what it is. Like, you find yourself in a season where you're like, I want what God desires for me. This time is different. I am going to change. And yet, you find, when you're being honest, months, years down the road, that your life is still oriented around the same old patterns of sin and death and brokenness. Your life is still constructed the same sort of way. It's a hard thing when you realize, like, so much of our repentance is just, it's just empty. And Joel says, mourn the thing. Rend your hearts, right? Let yourself be torn apart inside, not just at this outward level. Be changed to the core of who you are. Reorient your life entirely. The day of the Lord is coming, right? It's fearful what he's talking about. But again, there's this question in our minds. Why bother with repentance? Our modern sensibilities are just as bothered by the notion of repentance as they are by judgment. We're uncomfortable with that. And honestly, it just seems kind of meaningless. Why should I repent if I can't change this thing that's coming, right? If disaster is coming, if everything is lost, repentance is kind of... A little too late, right? Too little, too late. What am I supposed to do? Nothing can be done. It's hopeless, 
Like, that's, that's what's happening. Why should I bother with repenting? And, and then Joel says in verse 14, he asks this question, and I love it. He says, who knows? There's this, this holy kind of curiosity in Joel. Who knows what God might do? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Who knows what God might do in this scenario? I don't think we ask that question enough. In the Hebrew, it's, it's really beautiful. We can kind of read over it in the English. Joel says in verse 12, notice this. He says, return to me. It's the word that we normally interpret as, as repent. That's what repent. Shuv in Hebrew means to turn. You've probably heard that before. Or to return, right? And that's what he's saying here. Return to me, God says. Reorient yourselves toward me. Turn back toward me and away from the thing you've been walking toward, right? Turn toward me. Return to me. And then he says in verse 14, who knows? God may return to us. It's the same word. God may shuv. God might return to us if we return to him. If we were turned back, if we were to turn back toward him, he might just turn back toward us, right? And what's scandalous is, Joel is saying, if we would repent of what we're doing, God might repent of the thing he has chosen to do. That is a scandalous thing to say, the idea of God repenting. He's using that kind of strong language. If we would return to him, he would return to us. Who knows what he might do? That holy curiosity. Joel is teaching us something there. We can't presume upon the grace of God. That's a hard thing to do. We can't expect God to be gracious to us because if we're all honest, when we look at humanity, when we look at ourselves, we don't deserve it. We know that grace is not a thing we deserve, so we can't presume upon his grace. God is just in whatever he decides to do with his good world. It's his. We recognize that. We feel that sometimes. Joel says we, we can't presume upon the grace of God, but we can presume upon the character of God. Did you notice what he did? He makes this statement. It's in verse 13. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. He's quoting Exodus. He's quoting God's own words to Moses. That's how God des des decided to describe himself. Slow to anger and abounding in love. Gracious and compassionate. Joel is using God's own words, God's own character. We cannot presume upon his grace, but we can presume upon his character. Joel's saying, I can't control or manipulate God, even as one of his prophets. I can't tell you that if you do this, it's going to guarantee that everything can change and go away, that all this pain can just cease. Man, we would love that. And Joel is saying, no, I can't guarantee you that. I, I can't presume upon God's grace. But I do know who he is, Joel says. If you remember the story of Jonah, Mia is actually going to be preaching from Jonah in a few weeks. You should be here to listen to Mia preach from Jonah. But there's this line the king of Nineveh says. Jonah tells him that Nineveh is about to be destroyed, and he orders everyone in Nineveh to repent. Everything must change, he says. And his words are, who knows? Same phrase. Who knows what God might do? If we repent, he might relent from all of this. 
And the, the church has to be marked by that same holy kind of curiosity. No, we can't presume upon the grace of God. But we do know who he is. And that has to shape everything about how we view the world around us and the people around us. We are a people who know his character. And when we see hopeless situations unfolding around us, when we see disaster around us, destruction around us, when we see brokenness and sin, when we see broken people who are hopelessly lost, we ought to be a people asking continually, who knows what God might do? People who are filled with that kind of holy curiosity. Who knows what God might be doing in the midst of this? What could come from all of this? Perhaps God is exactly who he says he is. Perhaps what God spoke to Moses in Exodus 34 remains to be true. He is still slow to anger and abounding in love toward us. Regardless of what we're seeing. There is this eternal optimism for God's future. Where he's taking us here and now. Joel is saying. Who knows? And I think that's, that's an interesting thing to hear. Thinking about yesterday and having done a lot of reflecting and, and, and remembering what that was like to be in high school and, and watch that all play out on a television screen. And thinking about the level of fear that, that people were dealing with during all of that. And just reminded us, like, that was a terrible, terrible time. The fear that gripped people's hearts. That was a whole season of loss for so many people. You just couldn't get away from it. And it is so much like what we're dealing with right now. The sense of hopelessness that we feel in the here and now. The sense that this, is, this thing is unending. And Joel is pressing upon us. There is this eternal optimism and eternal hope that speaks to the here and now. God is moving us towards something good ultimately. And that speaks to right now, even in the midst of what feels like loss and destruction, and pain. We know who He is. Yes, we know the situation is, is overwhelming, but we know who He is. Let's read up verses 21 to 32. It's a bit of a long section, but it, it's important. This is what He says. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Don't be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad. People of Zion rejoice. For he has given you rain. Because he's faithful. Forgive me. Okay, here we go. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. 
the great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, even on slaves, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. The word of the Lord. This is good. I think it's more than what we expect from the prophets. Because again, you can kind of get distracted by the, uh, the bugs. It just feels a little disconnected from, from our experience. And then Joel says something like that. What Joel is hoping for materializes. That curiosity, that question, the answer to the question, who knows, is that God is exactly who he says he is. It's this picture of God, gracious and compassionate. We see Judah in full bloom. The devastation has passed. The fields are green. The trees and the vines are bearing fruit. You catch all that imagery. It's life erupting where there was death. And God says, don't be afraid. Excuse me, Joel, what? Don't be afraid. The ridiculous locust invasion, the devastation and destruction, don't be afraid. Rejoice and be glad. God is doing something in the midst of it. That line, I will give back to you. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. I will quit, I promise. This is not my gig, I don't normally do this. God will repay for everything we've lost. And this is most certainly a season of loss. So even as we mourn, even as we mourn, Joel is teaching us, rejoice and be glad. There's something good about what's coming. The most memorable mark, though, that Joel leaves. Kyle stopped crying, right? Jeez, Louise, get past it. Now, um, he makes this statement, and this is probably the most familiar part of Joel for you. He says, afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
God is going to choose to be present among his people in a different kind of way, right? His presence with his people won't just be evident in the flourishing of the land. It'll be evident in their very bodies. He's saying, not only will the land blossom and bloom, you will blossom and bloom. Not only will the land bear fruit, you will bear fruit. You will bear the evidence of the Spirit indwelling you. You will be changed in ways you can't make happen yourself. Joel is promising the reality of an indwelling inside of you spirit. Not a spirit that you go to a particular location to experience Not a spirit that comes episodically every once in a while, but a spirit that lives and dwells in you. And not just for some, but for all, he's saying. He says, young and old will experience this indwelling spirit. Sons and daughters, even servants. See what he's doing there. Regardless of age, regardless of gender, sex, regardless of your place within society, socioeconomically, You're going to experience this. The gift God longs to give to his people, it transcends all of our exclusion, all of our division. The Spirit is going to come, and God is saying, no one needs to be excluded from this. We only choose to exclude ourselves from the thing God is offering us. We only choose to exclude others from the thing God is offering us. It's not him. God's salvation will be complete, right? Again, this is not just the land. When God chooses to make all things new, he excludes nothing and no one, Joel is saying. And that's why Peter, seeing something unprecedented unfolding at Pentecost. You remember that scene, surely. Here they are in Jerusalem, gathered with the celebration of this festival. And there are suddenly people who are speaking language that they cannot possibly know. They're prophesying in languages, preaching in languages they don't know. And people are verifying, like, I know exactly what they're saying. Right? It's this amazing moment, right? You're familiar with it. They were not familiar with it. They were uncomfortable with it. And they begin to accuse those people of drunkenness. Like, how much have you guys had to drink? It's 9 a.m., guys, right? And Joel speaks to the moment. Peter says, no, 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 no. There's a much better explanation for this. This is what Joel was speaking of. God is pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Just like the imagery that he gives us of of the rain pouring out on a dry and thirsty land, right? He's saying God is pouring out his spirit in the same sort of way. And the church watches it happen again and again. God is pleased to dwell with us. God is pleased to dwell in us. That's what's different. Israel knew what it was for God to dwell with them. What Joel is promising is that God will dwell in us. And he will work in this world through us. It's unbelievable what Joel is saying. The way Joel and the prophets articulate judgment. It can stir this this kind of like holy terror within us. It can bother us. It can shake us to the core. It's a fearful thing he's talking about. And yet there's this reminder. God's work 
never ends in destruction. God cannot betray who he is, Joel is saying. We can't presume upon his grace, but we know who he is. We know his character. He's gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. He's withheld nothing from us, not even his own son, not even his very spirit. He withholds nothing from us. And so in a season of loss, in a season where things, again, where we're reflecting on things that happened 20 years ago, as we're thinking through all of these things, we as the church, we as followers of Jesus must be a people who are filled with that hope, who recognize the goodness of the thing God has in mind for his people and for creation. That thing that we're hearing from Joel ought to change the way we experience and the way we see the world around us, how we live toward one another, how we live toward this world. There is this eternal optimism as we look toward the future and coming kingdom of Jesus on earth as it is in heaven. That shapes the here and now. It speaks to right now. This is not just pie in the sky. This is real here and now stuff. And we're invited to believe it wholeheartedly. To be filled with joy. To rejoice and be glad even in the midst of what feels like a mess. A nightmare. A painful thing that just won't seem to subside. Here is Joel saying, rejoice and be glad. Amen.